an appropriate song in light of the uh, text today from Psalm 73. What do you do when life seems unfair? If you've lived very long at all, you have faced situations, you've heard about stories that have seemed unfair, and you've, if you've been honest, you've asked the question, where was God when that happened? You see it when you see a child abducted and people going out and searching, knowing that the chances of that story ending well would be slim. You see it in the level of sex trafficking that's going on in our country, much less around the world, with terrorism and child abuse and famines and tsunamis and hurricanes and floods and cancer and handicaps and Alzheimer's and violence on every level. All around this room today are people that life has dealt you a bad hand. And if you're not careful, you will be bitter at God and you will waste your sorrows by being mad at God, thinking that he doesn't know or that he doesn't care. The world looks at us and says, well, you people believe in God in hard times because you're so weak and feeble, you need a crutch to rely on. Yes, I do. I'll admit it. I'll admit it because there's too much of life I cannot explain, I cannot justify, and I cannot fix. And in light of that, I need to learn to depend on the God who knows that I can't do any of that and get his perspective on how I am to view life when it is at its worst or when it seems unfair. It would be irrational and unbiblical to think that Faith does not have to deal with reality because faith is dealing with reality. It's the reality, first of all, that I'm a sinner that can't save myself. That's where faith begins. That I need a Savior beyond my ability to save myself. But then I get into circumstances in life because life does not make you immune from problems and from issues just because you're saved. Just because you pray every day, just because you read your Bible, doesn't mean that you're exempt and immune from the issues of life. Ron Dunn used to say, trust Jesus and watch for trucks. There's some wisdom in that. I need to trust Jesus, but I need to pay attention to. Because life's coming at us from all directions. You can't read the Bible without seeing that there were people in the Bible that struggled with their faith and with their life. Job and Jeremiah and David and Asaph, who wrote this particular psalm, Psalm 73, struggles with life are a part of life. And the reason is because we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world that's, that's decayed and corrupted by sin and by selfishness, and we all at some point ask the question, why is there evil? Why, why do good things happen to bad people? But really, the better question is, is uh, why does any good thing happen to any of us in light of the world in which we live? Why do bad things happen to good people? 
You and I know people that are struggling and are hurting. I, I know people that, that things have happened in their life, and, and I ask questions. Why them? Why are they having to go through that? I mean, you know, I'm kind of like Jerry Clower. If I were God, I could fix some things. There are a lot of people in this world that I think deserve some of the problems that people I know are having that I don't think deserve them, and I think they do deserve them. You know, I'd, I'd like to switch the deck around a little bit. Maybe cheat. <laughs> who gets to have problems? Who doesn't? I'd, I'd like to be able to wave a wand and say, God's people don't have to have problems. But I'm not in control. And neither are you. And as Spurgeon said, on every pew, there is a broken heart. If we went around this room today and we began to talk about the things that have deflated us or defeated us, that have broken our hearts, all of us would have a story. We would have something we could say when it seemed like God was unfair. Now, you can deny the existence of God if you want to, or you can try to deny that evil exists. Both of them are a waste of time. Wearsby said, and I love this, if you deny that God exists, then how do you explain it, all the good that's in the world? Dr. Hutton said this, a man who gives up his Christianity only surrenders a life of faith troubled by doubt for a life of doubt troubled by faith. I, I like what uh, Matthew Henry said about Psalm 73. He said, the psalmist was learning to walk in victory by degrees. You see, it, it didn't just magically happen. He was struggling with his faith. And so I want you to pick up in, in uh, Psalm 73 in verse 1. And by the way, Psalm 73 is, is really the book of Job in a nutshell. If you want to know what the book of Job is about, you read Psalm 73, and it's basically a nutshell of what Job had gone through, who's probably one of the earliest characters in all of Scripture, although it's in the book just before the book of Psalms. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, and my steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, let's just stop there for a minute. Let's just make a little application here. I know it probably doesn't bother any of you. It bothers me that some of these corporate execs get hundreds of million dollars in bonuses while they bankrupt my 401k. I know that doesn't bother any of you. It just bothers me. The prosperity of the wicked. You know, they're, they're building a house in the Hamptons, and you're trying to figure out how to pay your electric bill. It's a, it's a little disconcerting. Don't think that God's Word doesn't know what's going on in life. Look, look at it as we continue. For there are no pains in their death. By the way, have you ever noticed that every Hollywood celebrity dies peacefully at home, surrounded by friends and family? You ever notice that? They died peacefully at home. There, there's no pain in their death. Why? Because the world doesn't want to tell the truth about the painful death of the wicked. It, it wants to gloss it over because, by and large, the media is in the same bed with the wicked. It, it says their body is fat. Uh, listen, 
I mean, you look at these people and, they, you know, you, you see them on the covers of magazines and everything. They, they got no fat grams. They not got no cholesterol, uh, no carbohydrates. I mean, nothing. I mean, you just think, man, I look at a donut on donut day and I gain 12 pounds. <laughs> and these people seem to get away with everything. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued by like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. They curse God. They curse values. They curse morals. They curse the Bible, and they seem to get away with it. I mean, the psalmist is a little discouraged. By the way, if you watch enough news You'll be in Psalm 73 before you know it. There are only two parts to this psalm. First of all is the trial of faith in verses 1 through 14. The trial of faith. Even as he affirms his faith, he admits, I've got some issues here. I mean, here's a man who keeps the Sabbath. Here's a man who follows God's law. He's obeying the, the offerings. He's, he's keeping the feast. But, but he looks around and it seems that the wicked are prospering and the pure in heart are not. And it seems unfair to him. Verses 3 through 11, there's a cynicism in his words here. He's a little cynical and jaded by all that he sees going on. It seems they're getting away with it. And if you look at it, he's not so much bothered by what our insurance companies call the act of God, floods and hurricanes and tornadoes. He's bothered by the acts of men, injustice, abuse, exploitation, and arrogance. And he's asking the question, God, how are they getting away with this? Now, let's just be real practical here. I don't know who was on the jury for John Edwards, but that boy got off with murder. You know, you just look at that and you think, does anybody understand what justice is? Does anybody know what's right and wrong anymore? Does anybody care about truth anymore? It's almost like jurors now, in many cases, you know, judged by a jury of your peers is kind of a joke. It's almost like a, a jury now is, how quickly can I get out and they put a microphone in my face so I can have my 15 minutes of fame? Rather than what is truth and what is right. I mean, you can get frustrated. I don't, you know, am I the only one that gets frustrated when I see this stuff? I, I mean, it, it just smacks at everything I know to be true and right. When politicians say they're against something and then they're for it and then they're against it and then they're for it and they seem to get away with it and might get reelected, you know, which side of your face are you talking out of? You know, because if you have integrity, this is what the psalmist is saying. Why is it that people with integrity never seem to win? Why is it people that, that uphold the things that are true to God never seem to get the favor of God and the blessings of God? It seems we always draw the short straw. Why is that happening? The psalmist is concerned about the very things that you talk about over your dinner table. He's concerned about the very things that you do when you're riding in your car listening to the news on the radio and you're talking but nobody's there with you. You're just talking to the radio. You're just arguing with the radio. You're just, you're just mouthing off to somebody on the radio that can't hear you, but you just want to say it to somebody. 
The psalmist said it to God. He said, God, this doesn't seem fair. What happened to honesty is the best policy? I, I remember when my grandparents died and we sold their, uh, they had an 80-acre farm with their house on it and they had 220 acres of pecan groves. And uh, I remember when we sold that and, and my mom and her two brothers and sister sat down around the table and said, this is how we're going to divide everything up because my grandparents didn't really leave a, a, a goodwill. And so this is how we're going to divide everything up. If you want something, we'll give it to you. You just kind of go and say, well, I kind of like that and I kind of like this. And they made a handshake. And then they sold the mineral rights and the water rights to the land on a handshake to the brother of the sister-in-law of one of the brothers. Now that's confusing and I've already lost you. If you did that kind of deal today, you need 14 lawyers and 175 pieces of paper that you got to sign in triplicate. Why? Because man is not good to his word anymore. You used to do everything on a handshake. Now you do it with a handshake and you put a handcuff on them and you walk with them and you make sure that they don't cheat before they get out the door. Why? Because it seems that people get away with not being honorable to their word. Because people say, well, I, I'll agree to pay that, and they sign a contract. I'll agree to pay that, and then they don't pay it. And so, no, so we get more and more complicated in our society. Why? Because honesty is not the best policy anymore. The best policy is to have a document that will bind people as much as possible. And it seems that people that break those trusts get away with it. Politicians who swear to uphold the Constitution and then violate the very Constitution they swear to uphold. Pastors who say that they will preach the Word and then they vary from it and preach to please people. Where's the integrity? Why, why do people get away with that? Why is there corruption in the land? That's what the psalmist is dealing with. Look at verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every moment. Now, let, let's just kind of get to where we are. It is real easy to see the problems and the inequities and the the injustice of life from a distance and not be really bothered by it or to be casually bothered. I, I think one of the things that happened to us after 9-11 is we were indignant and we were bothered, but we didn't know anybody that was disintegrated in that tower. It is when it hits close to home that we get most concerned about God's justice. It is when a neighbor's child is abducted that has played with our children. It is when a teenager that has grown up with our teenager is raped. It is when there's an injustice in our family. It is when we know someone that the member of the family went crazy and shot the children and then shot himself. It's when it gets close to us that we begin to say, God, how can this happen? Because from a distance, we kind of listen to it and we watch it and we go, man, that's bad, that's awful. But it's far enough away from us and far enough removed that, that we can be a little indifferent to it 
uncomfortable but not burdened by it. But when it hits home, it is like the French proverb. And by the way, only the French could come up with a proverb like this. We are strong enough to bear the ills of others. Meaning we are not strong enough to bear the ills against ourselves. Hazlitt said, the smallest pain in my little finger generates more mental concern in me than the destruction of thousands of my fellow men. I remember riding down the road with uh, Nelson Price one day, and between Roswell Street Baptist Church and downtown Marianna, there's a large cemetery, and it's got a bunch of military graves there. And I remember one day pulling in with Nelson, and we were just riding along and talking, and, and we went in, and he pulled up by a grave, and he said, I buried that young man who was killed in Vietnam. That young man was killed in Vietnam. That young man. I did all those services. He said, I never drive by this place, and I don't think about the men and women that risk their lives for my freedom. You see, it was personal to him because he was personally involved. the injustice of life. You know, there are a lot of Vietnam veterans that feel that there's a great injustice because while a lot of people in my generation were getting ripped and, and snorted and everything else on drugs and having free sex, they were over there getting killed. And the ones that didn't get killed came back and got spit on. That would seem to be injustice to me. It would seem to me that I'm enjoying freedom today because 50-plus thousand men gave their lives on a foreign field so that I could still be free. That would be injustice. But you see, Vietnam's a long way away, and Iraq is a long way away, and Afghanistan is a long way away, and Pakistan's a long way away, unless it's somebody in our community, and then we get affected by it unless it's one of our deployed Marines, and then it begins to impact us. The psalmist is saying, man, this has gotten under my skin. He is envious of the wicked, and he gives seven reasons why he's struggling. So if you want to just write these down. First of all, verses 3 and 12, they were rich. Here's a man struggling. Maybe he's having a hard time making ends meet and paying his bills. He says, man, these people are rich. They're loaded. They got everything they need. I'm just barely getting by. Verse 5, he says, they were immune from trouble. It seems that they, you know, they can always post bail. <laughs> they always get out. There's always a hung jury. I mean, they never get in trouble. They never have consequences for their crimes or their sin. They're rich. They're immune from trouble. Verse 7, they got their heart's desires. I mean, whatever they wanted, they seemed to get seems like nothing was withheld from them. It seems like they got, a, got anything and everything they wanted whenever they wanted it. He said they were proud in verse 6, first part of verse 6. Proud and arrogant, the wrong kind of pride. They were proud, they were arrogant people. And when you're proud, you can become violent. They were violent, the last part of verse 6. Verse 9, they were blasphemers. They were blasphemers. And by the way, 
those who get their heart's desires and are proud and violent sometimes even try to misquote the Bible to prove their point. And that's blasphemy. And then he says, they seem to die without any pain in verse 4. So here's a question. And it's an honest question when life is unfair. So God, if the wicked are not punished, and if the righteous are not rewarded, what's the value of a virtuous life? I mean, if the wicked are not going to be punished and we're not going to be rewarded, what value is it to live for you? What value is it to live by your word? What value is it to worship you, to honor you? If What's the value of virtue, virtue if this is the way life is going to be? And if you stopped right here, it would be very depressing. But in verses 15 through 28, he talks about the triumph of faith. And he continues, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Now let me just stop right there. Moms and dads and grandparents, be careful what you say about God and your questions about life in front of your kids. Because you could betray a generation and you could come to the right conclusion over time and forget to communicate that to your children. So be careful what you say, what you complain about, what you talk about in front of your children, lest you betray them that they think that you believe that God is not fair. So the psalmist said, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. I think he was troubled on two sides. I think he was troubled by the prosperity of the wicked, and I think he was troubled by his own attitude about it. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction, how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Now, he got to God, and he got in God's house, and he got a perspective. By the way, uh, if you want to know the fulfillment of that, there's coming a day at the Battle of Armageddon when Jesus is going to ride in and he's going to take over, and the enemy and the unjust are going to get exactly what they deserve. But until that day, wrong sometimes seems to be on the throne. John Wesley in his journals tells a story about a man that he was spending some time with, and he said the man began to complain about all the troubles that he was going through and, and all of his doubts. And as they were walking along this road, Wesley pointed out a cow looking over a stone wall. And he said to his friend, he said, why do you think that cow is looking over that stone wall? And the man looked and pondered for a minute, and he said, well, maybe because he can't see through it. And Wesley said, exactly. And that's the same way you need to look at your doubts and your troubles you need to get over them so you can see through them 
you and I have a triumph of faith. I like what one commentator says. He says, we like the moon. We, we are like the moon. We live on borrowed light. When our faces are turned away from God, we are always left with nothing but the darkness of our own shadows. The first step out of doubt is always to turn our eyes from the problem and get a glimpse of God himself. So the psalmist made it to the temple. And he sees from God's perspective. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Let me give you three perspectives here. First of all, a perspective on human destiny. A perspective on human destiny. And all of this happens now, remember, all of this happens in the context of a corporate worship experience. Now, he goes to the temple and he's there. You could say he's there alone having a personal worship experience. But when he goes into the sanctuary of God where others have gathered, he has this understanding about life and about destiny and about eternity. This is why worshiping together as a body of believers is so important. Because it helps us to keep perspective. Because if, if we don't do that, then we lose our focus and we lose our, our, our focus on the main thing and on God and we start to get in focus on ourselves and we only see life as a moment in time instead of seeing life in the window of eternity. It is real easy to just think about life as just here and now, from the day you die until the born until the day you die. That's easy. What is hard, and what one thing worship with a body of believers does for us, is we rub shoulders with people who have already been down the road that we're on, or we rub shoulders with people who are about to go down the road that we've been on. And we gain perspective by seeing that they have survived and they have kept their faith and they have walked with God. And so whatever the issue is, whatever the situation is, it was in the temple that he began to get a perspective on human destiny that there is life and there is death, there is heaven and there is hell. So there's a perspective on human destiny. Secondly, there was a perspective on himself perspective on himself he saw himself he woke up to man I've been thinking the wrong way about all of this I haven't been focused in the right direction I haven't been thinking clearly and, and and you may not make the connection when you come to church on Sunday you may not make it the forsake not the assembling of ourselves together is important because in the body of believers we resist the temptation to lock ourselves in a closet and to go into hiding. I, I, I've been at this a long time. And I'll tell you, you have two choices when trouble comes. You can run from God or you can run to Him. But running from God isn't going to fix it. Locking yourself away from believers. I have watched people through the years of my ministry when I was in youth ministry and as a pastor... 
I have watched people, they have a problem, they have a crisis, they have a setback, they have a defeat, and they're ashamed or they're embarrassed or they feel guilty or, or they're just going through stuff and they don't know what to do, and they withdraw from church at the very time they need the help of the body of Christ. And the devil will whisper in your ear and say, See, God's no help. And that's why you need to be around God's people so that you can know that God is a help in time of trouble. You need to be encouraged by people that are walking through their own crisis, but they lay it aside and come together and they see God in the bigger picture. So let me give you a couple of thoughts here. First of all, good habits can overrule a weak will. There are going to be some times in your life where you're going to wake up on Sunday morning and you're going to say, I just don't feel like going to church today. I've just had a bad week. Next week's going to be bad. I just don't feel like going to church today. Good habits can overrule a weak will. You say, well, I don't want to. doesn't matter whether you want to. Just do it. You heard the story about the guy who said one day, he's sitting at the breakfast table on Sunday morning, and he said, I'm not going to church today. And his wife said, well, why are you not going? He said, nobody there likes me. They all hate me. They talk about me. Nobody ever speaks to me. Uh, you know, I, uh, none of them like me. I don't think anybody there likes me. She said, well, you got to go. And he said, well, you give me one good reason why I've got to go. He, she said, because you're the pastor and you got to preach today. You see, you ought to make it your prayer. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I promise you there is an atmosphere in this church that can lift your spirit. There are people in this church that will hold you up when you can't hold yourself up. You see, when you see yourself, you realize, I need God right now. Secondly, in worship, you come to terms with doubt and faith. In worship, you come to terms with doubt and faith. You should doubt your doubts and you should believe your faith. In worship, you come to terms with doubts and faith. Why? Because the Word of God makes us come to terms with our doubt and makes us come to terms if we're walking by faith. And then lastly, in corporate worship, you're reminded of God's faithfulness. In corporate worship, you're reminded of God's faithfulness. I could go across this room today, and in every section, I could point out people that have a story of God's faithfulness in a time of doubt and struggle and pain and adversity. Some of you could too. Why? Because as one writer said, discipleship is a long obedience in the right direction just when you stay faithful to God. God is always going to be faithful to you. He will not remove you from every crisis. He will not deliver you from every adversity because it is in the crisis and in the adversity that you learn to trust him more. But he will always be faithful to you. And then finally, a perspective on the goodness of God. 
verse 23, a perspective on the goodness of God. We used to say this a lot more than we say it now. God is good. And all the time, God is good. And all the time, you know, he's good whether we feel like he's good or not. Because he's God whether we think he is or not. Look at what he says in verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. And with your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish, and you have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Now, three little phrases I want you to write in your Bible or in your notes. You get down to the end, verse 28. The nearness of God is my good. That's the source of contentment. Your contentment is not in your circumstances turning out the way you want them to. Your contentment, the source of your contentment is God. His nearness to you. A friend that sticks closer than a brother. The Holy Spirit who is the encourager who comes alongside you. The Lord God my refuge. That's the secret of confidence. The secret of confidence. The Lord God my refuge. You've seen people, I've seen people that have gone through crisis and through valleys, dark valleys. And and yet there seems to be a peace about them and there seems to be, even in their pain, a hope inside of them. Why? Because God is their refuge and ever-present help in time of trouble. You know, God isn't almost present. Excuse me, I can't be with you right now. I've got some other people I'm dealing with that have more serious problems than you. That's not our God. He is an ever-present help in times of trouble. That means when you're awake, when you're asleep, when you can't sleep, he's an ever-present help in times of trouble. Where do you run? Some people run to a bottle. Some people run to drugs. Some people run to other people. The psalmist said, I run to God as my refuge. And then I may tell of all your works the soul's commitment. The soul's commitment. You see, the psalmist said, I'm committed to telling people. In fact, he did. He wrote it down in a psalm. He said, here's where I was, but here's where I ended up. It's okay for you to say to God, I'm having some trouble with this because God does not mind honesty. He is not threatened by your honesty. He's not threatened by your grief. He's not threatened by your pain that you don't understand. Someone has said, God is our best friend at all times. And sometimes he's our only friend. But just remember, you are never without a friend with God.
not ever, no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through. What the psalmist is talking about is abiding in the presence of God, being settled down in God's presence. It is knowing and loving God even when life throws you a curve. I remember when I was uh, playing Little League ball, uh, I wasn't a very good baseball player. I, I had a soft spot in my heart for the ball, so I didn't hit it a lot. <laughs> but, but I remember there was this guy uh, pitching for the other team, and he didn't like me, and I didn't much care for him. And uh, he beamed me. I mean, he beamed me. And I was woozy. I stumbled to first base. And then I get a signal from the coach, still second. I don't even know I can see second at that moment. And so I still second. And when I do, the catcher tries to throw me out at second. But he doesn't throw me out at second. Five feet from the bag, as I'm running for my life, about to start sliding, he hits me in the head with a baseball. Now I've been beamed twice. And I'm thinking, you know, I mean, I'm nine years old, but I'm thinking, Lord, this is not fair. This is not right. Nobody else on this team has been beamed once today. I've been beamed twice in the same inning. This is wrong. You know, sometimes it just seems like the devil is out to hit you upside the head. And about the time you recover, he throws it and he hits you upside the head again. But just remember, your destination is not first base and it's not second base and it's not third base. Your destination is to be faithful and play by God's rules and he'll get you home. And he will get you home safely. And he will take you by his right hand and get you there. Let's pray together.